guys can come on in and find a place that you can grab a seat. We're starting a new series today, and the series is called We Are the Church. And it's a series about who God has called us to be as the church and how he's called us to be it as a church. Today, specifically, the title of my sermon is Circle the Wagons. Circle the Wagons. During the pandemic, when we were kind of all stuck at home for a little while there, I uh, tried to get my daughters to watch a show that I had watched a long time ago called Little House on the Prairie. And uh, it didn't go so well. They were, it was a little too slow for them. They weren't really feeling it too much. But I love shows about how people settled our country and what life was like for those early settlers. And maybe, maybe I didn't pick the best one to try and show the kids about that. But I love shows about that and seeing how people made it out west. Almost always when people would go, they would go in groups. And the peop- there's a few people that went alone and made it alone, but really the people who made it out there consistently were people that went in groups. And they had to go come across all kinds of crazy things on their journey. They had to come across things like crazy terrain that they had to try and cross. I don't even know how they crossed some of the terrain they had to cross. They had to deal with drought and starvation, disease, infection, attacks from animals and people, all kinds of stuff that they had to deal with to try and make it out west. But the best way that they could possibly make it there was if they stuck together, if they stayed in a group, each person bringing their skills and their strength and lending all that they had so that they could make it out there as a group. And sometimes when they would come across challenging things, they would do what they called circling the wagons, where they would get in a circle and they would get on the inside of the circle where they could be protected from whatever was on the outside and they could defend themselves and they could make a plan to move forward. That's what I want to talk to you about today is circling the wagons. One of the things that I dislike the most about the American church is I think we have a tendency towards being fake. The American church does. Uh, We have a tendency towards putting forward before people an image of the way that we want them to see us when the truth is, in reality, who we are is very different than the image that we put forward. You can kind of see this on social media where people kind of take snapshots of their highlights of their life and show the world that. And we kind of look at that and we look down on that. But the truth is, I think we end up doing that as a church as well. Sometimes we come to church and we smile and we act like everything's okay when we're not okay, when we're struggling with stuff on the inside, or we act like we have it all together when the reality is we don't have it all together. When in reality, God has called this church to be a place that's like a hospital for those people that need care and those people who need to be healed and those people that need a fresh touch. And as it turns out, we are all of those people too. We all are in the place where we need a hospital. And church is supposed to be a place where people can come and encounter a living God and leave changed. But we're not going to encounter a living God and leave changed if we're not actually bringing who we are to the surface in church, if we're not actually coming as we are to experience God and experience change. And it's also impossible to experience life-giving, transformational friendships in the body of Christ if we're being fake, if we're not coming as we really are and being who we really are. The church needs to change, and we need to change. We need to change. We need to be who we are and be honest about who we are so that we can encounter God and be changed and we can have real relationships with each other. The world we live in is, is kind of a challenging place today, in case you hadn't noticed. 
There's a lot going on in the, in the world that we live in, and the church is pushing back against the culture that's changing and changing in ways that aren't always the best ways. And if we want to come out the other side of whatever challenges are in front of the church, whatever challenges we are going to come up against, if we want to come out the other side better than we go in, then we need to learn to stick together. We need to learn to circle the wagons. I want to talk to you this morning about a particularly difficult time in the disciples' lives, a particularly difficult time that they came up against. We're going to look at the, uh, right, right at the beginning of Acts. I'm going to give you a little bit of a um, context to what's going on in the scriptures that we're going to look at. So Jesus came and he walked on earth and he gathered disciples that he was going to do ministry with. He gathered these group of 12 guys and they start going through life together. And these disciples experience all kinds of amazing things with Jesus. They saw people who were blind see. They saw people who were lame walk. One time they were with a crowd of like 15,000 people that were hungry and didn't have food, and Jesus took enough food for one person, and he multiplied it to feed the 15,000 people. They saw all this incredible stuff. And they were in a time in history that the government was super corrupt, and it was really challenging, and they were trying to figure out what to do, and Jesus was talking about establishing his kingdom. And the disciples took that to mean that he was going to overthrow the government that was there. And Jesus kept trying to tell them, like, no, that's, my kingdom is not of this world. There's something different that I'm going to do. But they didn't totally understand it. And then Jesus ends up being brutally murdered and hangs on the cross and dies and was killed by the very government that the disciples were hoping he was going to overthrow. So the disciples are, like, disillusioned and discouraged in their faith. They don't even know what to make of it. And they all scatter. They just run for the hills. Some of them are afraid for their lives because they just watched their leader be killed. Some of them were discouraged in their faith and went back to what they used to do before they met Jesus. They kind of ran all over the place. Then Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus tells Mary to go gather everyone up. So Mary goes and gathers everyone up. She can't find Peter. Jesus goes and finds Peter, and he's back at his old life fishing. He gets everyone back together. The band is back together. And then just a little while later, Jesus ascends into the clouds, and they watch him fly in the sky, and then he disappears in the clouds, and he's gone again. And that's kind of where we're at right now. And I want to pick up in Acts chapter 1. I want to read verses 4 through 9, and I'm going to skip to verse 12. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Skip ahead to verse 12. It says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk away from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, 
along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the first thing that I'd like to point out to you in this portion of Scripture is the disciples circled the wagons in unity. They circled the wagons in unity. This is in verse 12 and 14. It lists out all the apostles that were together in the upper room. Now, here the disciples are in a really hard place. Their faith has been shaken. Jesus died on the cross. Their leader died, and they scattered and ran all over the place. And then Mary went to gather everyone back together. And here they are back together. Jesus has left them again. But this time, instead of scattering, they learned from what happened last time, and they stuck together, and they circled the wagons in unity. In America, we tend to have a very independent spirit. It's almost like it's part of the DNA of being an American. And there's some good things about that, but there's also a lot of things that aren't so good about that. Like, for example, if we want to enter into a relationship with Jesus, we can't operate in an independent spirit. We have to learn to be dependent upon him. And if we want to have unity in the body of Christ, we can't walk in independence. We've got to learn how to walk together. And Jesus values being together so much that he says when just two or three of us are gathered together in his name, that he would be right there in the midst of us. And when I think of walking together in unity, one of the things that I think about often is I think about Eve. When Eve fell and when she sinned, the enemy waited until she was alone. He waited until she was isolated, and then he went to that place and tempted her, and she ended up falling and sinning. I've often wondered what might have happened if Adam would have been with Eve in that moment, if she wouldn't have been alone. I wonder if Adam would have lent his strength to her, or maybe they would have just had a moment of sanity if it was more than just Eve alone, but they were together, and they would have said, wait a second, let's talk to the Lord about this. But Eve was alone, and in that place of isolation, she was vulnerable to the, the attack of the enemy. And even Jesus himself, when Satan was going to tempt Jesus, he waited until Jesus was alone in the wilderness. He waited until Jesus was hungry. He waited until Jesus was tired. And when Jesus was in that place, alone, isolated, in weakness, it was then that the enemy thought, maybe now I can get Jesus to fall. Maybe now I can get him to stumble. But of course, he wasn't able to. When we isolate ourselves, nothing good is going to come from it. We were meant to walk together, and when we isolate ourselves, we put ourselves in a very dangerous place. And I'm not talking about someone who's introverted and needs a night to be alone and read a book and recover. If that's you, I'm not like bashing you or anything like that. But I'm talking about people who habitually, on a regular basis, isolate themselves. Or people who, when they're in a moment of weakness and when they're in a moment of struggle, they isolate themselves and they don't lean into the strength that's there in the body of Christ. I can't somehow say with certainty what's coming next in the world. I don't have some specific prophetic um, insight on what's going to happen in the world. But I do have a sense in my spirit that there's a shaking coming to the body of Christ. And I don't know what that's going to look like, and I don't know what it's going to be. But I believe there is a shaking that's coming. And if we're going to be able to walk through the shaking that I believe is coming, we are going to have to learn to walk together. We're going to have to learn to discipline ourselves to walk together. We're going to have to learn how to make the main thing the main thing and not get focused on all these extracurricular things, but to keep Jesus the center and focus on the things that we have in common. Amen?
The second thing that I see in this portion of scriptures is they circled the wagons in obedience. This is in verses 4 and 5. It says, He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commands them to stay in Jerusalem together and to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so that's exactly what they did. They stayed together in Jerusalem, and they waited for the Holy Spirit together. When we find ourselves in a hard situation where we don't know what to do, and oftentimes when we find ourselves in that hard situation, we look around and we don't know what to do. We're not sure what the right step forward is. We're not sure what the right decision is. How many of you have ever felt like that, where you are in a situation that's difficult, and you look around and you're like, I want to do the right thing, but I'm not even sure what to do. In this portion of Scripture, the disciples show us what the wise decision is to make when you find yourself in that place where you want to make the right decision, but you don't know what to do. What the disciples did is they just did the last thing that Jesus spoke to them. When you don't know what to do in your life, when you're not sure what to do, just do the last thing that he spoke to you to do. They were in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had conversations of confusion amongst the disciples. I mean, seeing how the disciples interact with each other and learning about what they were like a little bit, I wouldn't be surprised if they were kind of confused. Jesus, I mean, they followed Jesus. They thought he was going to overthrow the government. Then he died on the cross. Then he rises from the dead. And they're like, okay, maybe now he's going to establish his kingdom. And then all of a sudden he disappears in the clouds. Like, I got to believe the disciples are kind of confused. And I wouldn't be surprised if they look around at each other and said, okay, he said he's coming back. Does anybody know when he's coming back? Like, John, he seems to tell you stuff before he tells the rest of us. Like, did he tell you when he's coming back? And John's like, no, he said, only the Father knows the time. I, I don't know when he's coming back. People are like, okay, well, how long are we supposed to wait in Jerusalem? And they look around at each other and they're like, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe a few days. I'm not exactly sure how long we're going to have to wait. There's always somebody, when you have a group of people, there's always somebody who's hungry, right? There's always some person who is focused on food and hungry. So my guess is one of the disciples was like, look, I know this taco place in Judea, it's like, it's kind of a ways away, but it is Tuesday, so like, maybe we should go to Judea. I wouldn't be surprised if Bartholomew was like, look, I told my parents that I was going to come back and work for the family business. And when Jesus died, I went back to work for the family business. Now I left the family business again. Now I got to go back and tell my parents that Jesus is gone again. Like, I need to go talk to my parents. And then somebody's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. Jesus told us to wait here in Jerusalem. He told us not to go anywhere. He told us to stick together and wait in Jerusalem. We can find food on the way to this room we're headed to. So let's find some food on the way. And let's go wait in this room. And that's exactly what they did, is they obeyed the Lord. Oftentimes in my life, when I've gotten in front of a situation that I need to make or walked into some situation where I didn't know what to do, I could almost always remember the last thing that I heard the Lord speak to me clearly. And sometimes we get in a place where we feel far from God and we feel like God's not speaking to us and not giving us direction. We're not sure, sure what to do. In those moments, if we'll follow what the disciples did here, they obeyed the last thing that he spoke to them. And you're always going to find yourself in a safe place if you obey the last thing that the Lord spoke to you. The third thing we see the disciples do 
as they circled the wagons in prayer. This is in verse 14. It says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Here the disciples are in Jerusalem waiting. They're probably kind of confused. They're not sure what's going to happen. They're supposed to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they don't really know what that is, and they've never seen it before, and they don't know what, it's, what it looks like, and how do we know when we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, and what's that going to look like, and what's that going to change? They're in that place, and when they're frustrated and confused and they don't know what to do, they pray. And what I want you to see here is that so many of us are waiting for the Holy Spirit to move in our life. How many of you have a situation that you're looking at right now and you're waiting for a miracle. You're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move in that place of your life. While you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move, the disciples show us the thing that we need to do is we need to pray. It's okay if it's prayer of confusion. It's okay if it's prayer of just saying, God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're doing. But when you're in the place where you don't know what to do and you're waiting for the Holy Spirit to move, let's be a people of prayer. Proverbs 15 uh, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Your prayers are powerful and effective, and God hears your prayers. God didn't somehow answer prayers in the Bible, and he doesn't answer prayers today. God is still on the throne, and he is still hearing the prayers of his people, and he is still answering prayers. But so many times, God's people forget to pray. We'd rather Google a solution to our problem, or we'd rather run to someone else who knows everything, or ChatGPT now knows the answer to every problem you could possibly face. But I'd rather talk to God than ChatGPT any day of the week, and I would rather Him hear my heart and hear my prayer and hear what I'm experiencing than some computer. Sometimes we tend to treat praying like we're presenting a to-do list to God and trying to convince Him to do our to-do list. But so many times when I've prayed, what's happened as I entered into prayer was I realized that there was something completely different on God's agenda. Sometimes I even forget what I'm praying as I align myself with what God is doing. And prayer is much more about aligning yourself what God is doing than somehow getting God to do a list of things that you want Him to do. Sometimes when I've gone to prayer, I've felt like I was trying to convince God to do something that I wanted Him to do. And as I entered into prayer and as I did that, many times what's happened for me was I realized that God was more interested in doing something in me. And I started out praying him to ask him to do something for me, but when I was asking him to do something for me, I realized that the situation I was in, God allowed it so that he could do something in me. And when we go to him in prayer, we'll find many times that he'll end up doing something in us that we didn't even expect him to do. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That verse has been very true when it comes to praying in my own life. For me, oftentimes, prayer has been the knob that has turned down the anxiousness that I've been experiencing in my life. And we live in, in a world where anxiety is like at an all-time high, and I don't know anybody that isn't anxious about one thing or another. We're always in a hurry and always seem to be anxious. 
And prayer is a place where we exchange our anxiety for peace. Prayer is a place where so many times I've gone to the Lord about something I was frustrated about or, or discouraged about, and oftentimes by the time I'm done praying, I've exchanged that anxiousness that I was experiencing for peace that passes understanding. That means peace that doesn't even make sense. And there's been times where I've walked in peace when my situation didn't change at all. Sometimes I go to the Lord in prayer, and at the end of the time I'm, I'm done praying, my situation hasn't changed. Maybe my situation has even gotten worse, but I feel completely different about my situation. I'm not anxious anymore. I'm walking in peace because I realize I'm not facing that situation alone, but now I'm facing that situation with a God that cares deeply about me and isn't hanging me out to dry, but he's walking with me every step of my life through all the hard things. The fourth thing that the disciples did is they circled the wagons in action. This is in verse 14. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed his crowd. If, addressed the crowd. If you were to keep reading, Peter ends up preaching and 3,000 people get saved. And I love this because when you circle the wagons, it kind of has a picture of an inward focus. And there is an element of protection when you you circle the wagons and an an element of inward focus, but that's not the end destination. Circling the wagons is actually for the point of action. There's action that's going to happen. There's movement that's going to be attached to it. There's going to be an expression that's attached to it. And the Bible doesn't say that Peter stepped out to preach. It says Peter and the eleven stepped out to preach. Peter didn't step out to preach alone. Peter stepped out with 11 people. And when you're stepping out to do something that God has called you to do, let me tell you, there's nothing better than having 11 people in your corner with you. When you stand up there to preach, and this is Peter's first time preaching, I wouldn't be surprised if his voice was shaking and his knees were knocking, but he had 11 people in his his corner to say, amen, preach it. 11 people to say, a little louder for the people in the back. 11 people to wave their hankies and say, come on, Peter, tell them the truth, even if they look like they don't want to hear it. Tell them what they need to hear. There's nothing like having people in your corner that can cheer you on as you step out into the thing that God has called you to. Nothing like it. And these people that Peter was with, they were people that had spent a lot of time together. In our best estimate, in our best understanding, they'd spent about three years together. They left their jobs, some of them left families, and they spent about three years together. Three years together building relationship. Three years together being discipled. Three years together out under the stars, talking about this God of the universe that all of a sudden is snoring next to them. Three years together, building relationship together. And during that time, these 11 people that were with Peter, they got to know him well. They saw Peter's good moments, and they saw Peter's failures. These guys saw Peter walk on the water, and they also saw him sink when he got afraid. They saw Peter step up to defend Christ, But there was a sword in his hand, and he was going for the Roman soldier's neck. But he wasn't so good with the soldier, so he cut the guy's ear off. And they watched Jesus pick it up off the ground and reattach it. They saw all these things in Peter's life. They sat with him around the fire and ate dinner. And they heard about Peter's doubts. They heard about Peter's fears. And they were able to encourage one another and strengthen one another. 
But so they saw Peter's humanity. They saw his shortcomings. They saw the reasons that he should have been disqualified from standing there and preaching. But these 11 were also there when they heard the, the mighty rushing wind in the upper room. They were there when the Holy Spirit fell in the place. They were there when fire appeared over Peter's head. And they could say, Peter, we believe in you. Peter, we believe in the Holy Spirit that's in you. Peter, stand up there and do it. And they stood with him. When you step out into the thing that God has called you to, there's nothing like having people in your corner that know why you should be disqualified, but still believe that the God that's in, in you is more than enough to do the thing that he's called you to do. So many times in our life, we, go to, we get to a, two points in our life. We get to either the point where we're up against a hard situation, we're up against difficulty in our life, or we're about to step out in something that God has called us to. And in each of those places, oftentimes, we wait until the moment, until the point of intersection to look around and see who's standing with us. We wait until our backs are against the wall and we're in a really difficult situation to look around and say, who's standing with me? Or we wait until we're about to step out into something that God has called us to. And in that moment, we say, who's standing with me? But the disciples didn't wait until the moment. The disciples built relationship over time so that in the moment when they were up against a hard situation and in the moment when they were about to step out into something that God had called them to, they had people that were standing with them. And I want to encourage you guys to do the same thing in your own lives. Don't wait until all hell breaks loose in your life to look around and go, who's standing with me? Invest in relationships now, in this season, in the good day, so that you'll know on the hard day who's actually going to stand with you. Don't wait until you step out into the thing that God has called you to, to build relationships and get people to join with you. But build relationships now, ahead of time, so that in that day, you'll have people that will stand with you. This is why we do things like life groups and middles, and we have women's Bible studies, and we have men's groups that meet for coffee on Saturday mornings. This is why we do these these things. It's not just so that we can fill up our calendar or schedule. My schedule is plenty busy, and I'm looking for stuff to take off my plate, trust me. But I don't want to take off my plate the things that are important. I don't want to take off my plate the things that are going to be the thing that's going to provide a foundation and stability for me in the moment when I need someone to stand next to me and lend their strength to me. I want to make sure that I keep those things. We're actually going to be starting up life groups again in October, in the first week of October, and we're going to be talking about that more in a couple weeks. But I want to encourage you, when we do offer life groups, find a place that you can get plugged in. The disciples didn't just build relationship when things were good. They just didn't build relationship when it was convenient and easy. They built relationship over time, and they invested in those relationships so that in the moment when Peter needed someone to stand with him, there was a group of people that he knew loved him and had his back and were in his corner. Amen? When the disciples were faced with a really hard situation, they circled the wagons in unity, they circled the wagons in obedience, They circled the wagons in prayer, and they circled the wagons in action. It's my prayer that in whatever is coming next for the body of Christ and whatever is coming next in your life, I don't know what's coming next in your life and what challenges you might have to walk through, and I don't know what challenges the church as a whole might have to walk through, but it's my prayer that in all of those things, we'll circle the wagons and we'll learn how to walk together in unity. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. 
Lord, we thank you that you're teaching us to learn how to walk together, how to walk in unity, how to walk in relationship, how to disagree and how to still walk together, how to see things differently and how to still walk together. Lord, you value unity so much that you say when two or three people gather in your name, you'll be right there. And Lord, that's exactly what we do. We gather in your name. And Lord, I ask that as different groups meet together, life groups meet or friends get together for dinner, I ask you to help us to remember that we gather in your name. There might be things we disagree about and things that we can't come into agreement on, but there's a whole lot that we do agree on. We agree in who you are and that you've saved us and set us free, and that you're in the process of making us more like, you, more like you. Lord, I ask that the relationships that we're investing in, that they would go deep, and they would be the kind of relationships that would stand when we walk through hard things individually, and stand when we walk through hard things as a church. We ask you to be with us and teach us to walk, walk together, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Bless you guys. Have a great week.